Hi, my name is Adnan Mahmutovic and this is Love and is Discontents podcast. Today's special guest is uh, uh, Mohsin Hamid, uh, who is uh, one of my favorite writers and also a very good friend. Uh, he is, well, if, in my world, he doesn't need an introduction, uh, but I, I think I, I really want to say a couple of things about him. So Mohsin is an author of uh, uh, a lot of novels, uh, starting with Moth Smoke, uh, and then uh, his second novel, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which was probably one of my f- most favorite kind of uh, books of all time, uh, which was also turned into a movie, uh, and a number of other books, such as uh, uh, How to Get, Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, uh, Exit West, and uh, his latest is The Last White Man. Uh, there is also a collection of essays, a really excellent collection of essays called uh, Discontents and Its Civilizations. So, Mohsin, you are welcome to Love and Its Discontents. Thank you. Um, so, we are here, uh, well, we have two places connected uh, through... Uh, Technology, a little bit like in your exit west, where, you know, the, the world's spaces are connected through these doors. And here we are, you're in Pakistan. I'm in, in, uh, in Sweden. So, uh, but we are in one place. Um, uh, and, um, my first question is, and I, I, it's a big question, but I, I really want to start with this. Uh, what is love for Mohsin Hamid? Ooh, um, that's a, uh, interesting uh, uh, question. Um, I mean, it's so many different things, I suppose. Uh, uh, there's, um, in a way, when you ask sort of what is love, uh, it's like asking, you know, what is the divine or, you know, what is the universe or, um, you know, what is the meaning of life? Uh, these are things that we can sort of approximate to and allude towards and give um, metaphors for. Um, but we, we struggle to simply say that love is this or love is that. Um, it might be easier, instead of saying, you know, what love is, is to, you know, begin with um, why love matters. Uh, uh, you know, we, we live in a world where, uh, increasingly in so many places, we find ourselves cut off from, uh, connections that human beings have enjoyed really since the beginning of, uh, our emergence, you know, as a species, uh, um, in the last hundred thousand years. So people are living far from their families. They're living far, far from their, you know, clan or tribe. Uh, those ideas have, have broken down in much of the world. Um, we uh, uh, are seeing family transformed, uh, splintering in many cases. Um, religion, you know, transformed in many cases, um, uh, disappearing or reconstituting as a almost purely political uh, uh, force as opposed to something that's um, addressing spiritual questions in any kind of inclusive way. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and above all, we're living in a time where the market is so dominant in so much of the world. And the, uh, logic of the market is the logic of self-interest, that if we maximize the utility, um, connected to our self-interest, we'll be living a good market life. And that this is the only rational life. Um, and, and so self-interest is magnified uh, to a degree, uh, you know, culturally, economically, uh, socially, um, that, you know, is perhaps unprecedented. And, um, and this presents us with a challenge, which is that uh, the self is temporary. Um, you know, the self ends. And so we confront this crisis, which is what do I do? in a time where self-interest is everything and therefore the self is everything um, in the face of the knowledge that the self doesn't endure. And, um, and I think that uh, this is in a sense where 
love comes into it. Um, love is this capacity that people have uh, to feel a connection to someone, something else, and, um, and to transcend the self in a way. Um, it seems innate to our species. You know, uh, most people, you know, almost all people seem to feel or able to feel um, love. And, uh, and I think um, there's probably very good reason for that. Uh, now, of course, every um, one can feel connected to something. Um, but uh, uh, where we can begin to distinguish that connection from love, I suppose, is that there is, there is the connection, which is a kind of acquisitive connection. I'm connected to this thing because I want to possess this thing. Um, and sometimes we call that love too. Um, you know, I love you means I want you to be my, you know, my wife or my girlfriend or my whatever. Um, but, but I think the, the deeper notion of love, which is not necessarily an idea of acquisition, um, is uh, an, a desire for the object of our love to somehow flourish, irrespective of what happens to us. And that, you could say, non-possessive type of love, which is, um, which is a, a love in which the ego and the self is somehow diminished, is something that has existed in every cultural uh, domain. It exists in every literature. Um, you know, in Pakistan, uh, where I'm sitting right now, it's, of course, very pronounced in Sufi literature. But this occurs really all over the world in all different phenomena. And I think, you know, what is love? Love is many things. Um, but, but why are we talking about it? Um, I think because, you know, love is something that we can feel um, that allows us to be less imprisoned um, by the temporariness of, of the self. And, and that's what I think is quite interesting about it. And that resonates with uh, a lot of things that I've been thinking about and exploring in, uh, um, well, in the podcast itself, but also generally in my life, in my teaching, when I teach stories and so on. And I think uh, uh, you touch something here, which is uh, really interesting. And that is this kind of a transition of uh, how love uh, is changed in our time, you know, how it has become... Uh, uh, you, you talk about possession or ownership uh, and the market. Uh, so, uh, so this is something I see in quite a lot of your books, where the the economy clashes with love, uh, where uh, global capitalism clashes with love, and love uh, becomes a commodity, uh, a currency. Uh, means to something, uh, and the kind of an establish, it establishes or reaffirms the ego, uh, in, in many ways. And you, you see that as a kind of a, uh, antithesis to maybe what love, uh, should be really. Yeah, I think so. I, I think, you know, um, uh, we are running into what feels like the limits of a particular, you know, um, worldview. Uh, this worldview that um, the market is somehow going to make us free. Now, that's not to say that the market doesn't have its uses um, and that markets can't be, you know, quite helpful. But I think the fetishization of the market, which has occurred in the last, you know, in my lifetime, really the last half century, but particularly the last quarter century, um, is, is clearly now beginning to falter. You know, we are seeing um, after the end of the Soviet Union and the supposed triumph of, of the market, um, the excesses that that brings in terms of inequality, in terms of environmental degradation, in terms of the debasement of democracy, uh, dehumanization of our fellow human beings, um, anxiety, uh, so many things. And so I think we are beginning to uh, take seriously the question of, um, you know, what else is there? What other ways might we have? 
And um, and love, I think, is quite interesting when we think about this is because love is, is as a concept, something that is open to anyone, you know, in a way that, that God or the divine or the soul um, or any sort of religiously or culturally specific um, mode of talking about these questions isn't. Um, but anybody, whether they're Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu or atheist or Christian or Chinese or Pakistani or American or Swedish, um, can, in a sense, enter into a conversation about love. Um, and so partly, I think, as we begin to refor reformulate questions of, you know, how should we live? What should our world be? Uh, how should we um, organize our societies? Uh, it's useful to talk about these things. Um, and in fact, it's almost absurd not to talk about them. Uh, because, you know, if you ask people what matters to them in life, you know, for, I would imagine for the vast majority of people, love will be one of those things. And of love, you know, of course, romantic love is only one as aspect of that, right? There's people can have a love for, for a tribe. People can have a love for the species. People can have a love for, um, uh, those less fortunate themselves or for literature or for whatever. But, um, uh, but this feeling is so central um, and so marginalized. Um, you know, it's as though we inhabit a world um, designed by a human perspective that is so skewed away from the median or mean human. Uh, uh, and it's, we're chafing up against it. You know, uh, if you've been to Silicon Valley, it becomes very uh, apparent, right, as you go around and talk to people. That this is not really a representative sample of people from around the world. You know, it's a very engineering-oriented place. Um, it's a very money-oriented place. Um, it has a disproportionate share of impact on the world. Um, uh, but in so many ways, um, one encounters um, really compressed ideas of the human emotional span. Um, you know, really attenuated visions of wisdom. Um, you know, it's, it's as though one tiny corner of how people are is having this huge impact on how people all over the world are supposed to be. Uh, just as, for example, you know, Wall Street is um, uh, itself, you know, not the most typical place and yet has such a, such a huge impact. So I think... Um, opening up conversations that people prefer to have in terms of GDP per capita or, you know, eyeballs and attention span or the value of an IPO um, in different terms, including terms like, you know, what does this mean for love? What does this mean for human connection? What does this mean for um, uh, human attraction to uh, society or others? Um, I think is a very useful antidote really, to some of the skewed um, direction in which uh, our, our species is being led. That's quite right. I mean, if there is that sense that uh, a lot of these things which you um, uh, listed as uh, being major topics, major issues at stake. Uh, you, you mentioned all the big ones, you know, ethnicity, race, uh, nationality, uh, uh, money, um, ideologies, as all the, all those things, uh, seem to me to, uh, work reductively, uh, in relation to love. So like, uh, the way you put it is that love seems to be like the lowest common denominator. Like it's, it's something we all have in common. But then when we zoom in, when we claim ownership, we do it through, by the means of these, uh, these other things. So, okay, love of the nation, love of the ethnicity, or love of, uh, uh, this and that. Uh, so, so, uh, so there is a series of, uh, reductions going on. And, uh, uh, and those are, uh, in some cases that you mentioned, they seem to have been blown out of proportion. Uh, rather than recognized as being reductions of uh, of this uh, all encompassing thing, uh, they uh, they become like the the most important thing, or they are, uh, as you said, the Wall Street or the Silicon Valley or whatever it is. I mean, th these things suddenly it you know people talk about them uh, a lot more, and uh, 
I, I was actually thinking of uh, the way uh, the word love, even or the concept of love, uh, uh, when you use it in a, in an uh, in an ad, like oh, I love my Nikes or I love my coffee, <laughs> you know, the kind of reduction that happens there. Uh, as opposed to, you know, love as uh, something uplifting, something that, that connects us. So, so you can see how, how love is used because it is uh, a common denominator. But in that act, in that selling of it, is, it's reduced very much to, 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 uh, to that functionality of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we're seeing a lot of that sort of thing. So, uh, so much of the contemporary you know, attention economy is based on figuring out truths about human beings and then exploiting them to sell stuff. Um, so, for example, you know, one truth is that we disproportionately will give um, our attention to threats. So, we, um, you know, if we ignore a tasty strawberry, we'll probably survive to find another strawberry. But if we ignore, you know, something that might be a tiger in the trees, we might not survive. So, therefore, the possibility of threat is something that our species, like every species, you know, prioritizes. Um, and so, given that we are wired this way, our um, media environment is configured to continuously bombard us with a sensation of threat, that people are out to get us, um, the world is very dangerous, and people hate us, and we must band together, and we must do this and that. Um, and so we are, you know, in a sense, anytime you turn on your computer or your phone, you start looking at social media or you look at the, you know, internet and start browsing the news. It's a very short journey to being, you know, absolutely anxious and terrified, you know, by what is going on. And people all over the world are being, you know, terrified in this way. And similarly, in a sense, when we talk about love, um, there's the idea that, you know, we have uh, this feeling. And then our buttons are being pushed. You know, why not make somebody love their shoes? Why not make somebody love, you know, this variety of pornography? Why not make somebody love, you know, whatever it is? And so you take a basic human aspect, uh, uh, a sensitivity to threats, a desire for love, and then you rework it. Um, uh, you sort of take the human machine and treat it like a machine and you start applying it to other things. Like, oh, the heart is just a pump. Let's have it pump oil, you know. Um, the brain is just an electric, electric system. Let's have it work as a, you know, as a, as a electricity grid. Um, uh, that kind of uh, um, attitude towards a human um, may temporarily generate what you want, which is more eyeballs for your product or more sales for your product. But in aggregate, um, it winds sort of debasing those things and resulting in very pernicious responses. So uh, because people are so anxious, and have been made so anxious, um, the feeling of, of fear is, is resulting in the desire all over the world for somebody to come along and let us not be afraid, you know, protect us and take the fear to somebody else. Let's make other people afraid. Similarly, um, the, the desire to um, repurpose love uh, is resulting in this kind of um, uh, uh, bottled up uh, uh, love that is desiring expression. So, um, if you tell people not to love their countries, their tribe, you know, they're this, they're that, um, uh, you, you have two options. One is you can say, you know, love the person in front of you, love your fellow human beings, you know, love, um, you know, love, love the earth. Um, and how we actually do that, uh, what would that actually mean? We very rarely get very far into that conversation. Instead, we're told, you know, love your shoes, um, you know, love your apartment. And um, because those alternate narratives are really just to sell us something, um, they, they don't really meet the need and the need will then find a way to get expressed. And so we see um, you know, in societies that have so, you know, supposedly transcended these issues, suddenly the return of race, the return of ethnicity, the return of nationality, the return of, you know, my tribe against your tribe, my kind of person against your kind of person, my love for my kind of person, and defined as a kind of hatred for your kind of person. 
Um, so I think, I think that that is, that is the sort of catastrophic situation we find ourselves in. And it, it, to address it, we're going to need to go back to these ideas and to think how might they be repurposed. Um, you know, uh, uh, for example, if you think of, of, of migration, a topic I'm sure we'll come to later, um, you know, one thing is to say that I'm a native and you're a migrant and I should hate you. But another narrative might be to say that everybody's a migrant, that to move through time is to experience a kind of migration and that we can have compassion for our own sense of migration and then extend that compassion to somebody else who is also migrating. Uh, a fundamentally different approach, but one that isn't really selling you anything um, and has to be, you know, made in a different way. I agree. And it, it's almost like I, I'm thinking of love as a form of migration, as, as a movement towards movement through time or towards someone. Because you mentioned uh, this focus on the self. And uh, I think in our time, we, we tend to, f to, to say, oh, well, you need to have a stable self. You need to have a self which then loves someone or does something or buys something and so on. So there's like, uh, like an atomist view of the self. Uh, whereas uh, when I'm thinking back, for instance, maybe the Sufis that you mentioned or just generally kind of um, traditionally, the, the, there is more of a sense that uh, there is no such thing as a, as a self, but rather the self is created through connections, through, through love. So it's only by, you know, talking to you that I become myself. It's only by loving you or my family, whoever, uh, that I am kind of my, my selfhood is constantly kind of migrating and, and being created. And that's a much healthier view than because, because the moment you think that yourself is like this impenetrable atom, then you become protective. Like the moment, you know, the, the, the shell is broken or, or it's hurt. And then you say, Oh, well, this is the border on myself. Uh, but a lot of times the way you show it in your books is like the, these borders, where are the borders? We kind of traveling constantly, either through space or space and time, in our minds, in our imaginations. Uh, it's like these quick moments that we're not even aware of, like these connections. I, I remember when Changez is thinking of Erica in, and he's in Lahore and she is, they've lost connections, but he's thinking of her. They're very close, although, the spatial dis distance is great bit, uh, between them. Uh, um, so I think that, that makes me a lot more for, and I, I agree with you that there is uh, a sense that, uh, uh, that a lot of things are under threat, but, uh, but we don't conceive of love as being under threat. Uh, no, yeah, uh, it's almost like, uh, oh, there should be like a global call for, uh, love is threatened. Now all newspapers, <laughs> uh, go, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about it also is that, um, you know, we see, for example, this epidemic of, of loneliness in much of the world. You know, in the United States, there's all this research that's coming out that suggests that people are lonely in, to an unprecedented degree. You know, and you'll see, um, you know, U.S. GDP per capita is among the highest in the world. And the American economy is clearly doing, you know, uh, well, not clearly doing, but is, is said to be doing incredibly well. Um, but what does it mean for an economy to be doing well if huge swaths of the population feel they have almost no meaningful connection to any other human being? What are we actually measuring um, with this GDP, right? Uh, um uh, what is it? Um, you know, I, I, I read, I think that, uh, maybe in The Economist, um, that, that France um, has a lower per capita income than almost every U.S. state, except for perhaps the one or two poorest states in the United States, you know, Mississippi or something. Um, but, you know, if you go to Mississippi uh, and you compare what appears to be the quality of life in Mississippi and if you go to France and you sort of look around and think, you know, what is the quality of life here? It's very hard to say that Mississippi feels somehow well, more wealthy than France, that people in Mississippi are enjoying such a fantastically superior, you know, quality of living. Um, when we know that in parts of, you know, that part of the United States, there's hookworm and ringworm and, you know, unclean water supplies, you know, rampant uh, racism, you know, incredible inequality. Um, 
things that we associate really with what we you know think of as as a developing economy um, than as opposed to a sort of fully industrialized one uh, or whatever the terminology that we're currently using is. So I think that um, I think that uh, um, we you know it it would do us well to begin to interrogate how did we wind up with this way of thinking about the world. Not that economics is important. Of course, economics is important. But it certainly isn't the be-all, end-all. Um, and we don't seem you know, particularly uh, uh, amazing at, at even managing it. You know, it's, it's quite clear to anybody who's looking that debt levels all over the world are increasing, but particularly in wealthy societies. Where is this going? What does this mean? You know, surely this is not a process that can continue forever. Um, what should we be doing? Uh, so I think, I think that, uh, you know, going back to first principles, you know, what makes a human life worth living? Um, and starting from there is very important. And in The Reluctant Fundamentalist, in a sense, um, Chinggis is this character who is sort of, you know, homo economicus to a certain extent. You know, he's gone to this elite Ivy League university, gets this high paying job, he's on track to make lots of money. And somehow other things start asserting themselves. He falls in love with this woman, Erica. Um, he has a kind of affection, perhaps love for his life in the United States. He has this affection, love for this place, Pakistan, that he's, he's left behind. He has some unexamined tribal kind of association with this group of people called Muslims that he hadn't really thought about before. And, um, uh, and he finds that, you know, that Homo economicus in his case is really only a pretty superficial description of who he is. Um, these other things become much more salient and start to shape his life. Uh, and, and I think we're seeing that all over the world, you know, whether it's the unwinding of globalization and the imposition of sanctions on one country to the other and the ratcheting up of bo borders and boundaries. Um, you know, the idea that, uh, um, that how people feel, uh, is very, very important. Uh, not just, um, how much they earn, uh, is coming back. And I think the last thing I'd say on this is, if we replace love, which seems so, you know, sort of ephemeral, um, with, you know, food, for example, um, we know that people have to be fed. Uh, we know that if they're not fed, they start to go hungry. All sorts of things begin to manifest themselves. Um, if there is a hunger for nutrition, um, it begins to play out in some ways parallel to what a hunger for love begins to play out as. You know, people will have to steal, they'll have to rob, they'll have to hoard, they'll have to um, do all sorts of things. They'll have to fight with their neighbor, they'll have to band together with their neighbor to fight with the other town, they'll have to band together with the town to fight with the other country. Um, so, so I think very quickly it becomes apparent that we can't really starve people. You know, we can't just tell them, look, you know, buy this thing and forget about eating. Um, so in a similar sense, I think we need to think about, about um, human connection and love and the possibilities that that contains. And, and of course, fiction, because, you know, fiction is a very interesting, um, written fiction is a very interesting form in that um, it does establish a connection between people, you know, across distance. Um, and unlike some of the other forms like television or cinema, it's two individuals who are connecting. You know, one person who wrote this book and one person who's reading this book. Um, the experience is not that of, you know, 100 people making a film and 100 people in a cinema watching the film, or even 100 people making a TV show and one person watching the TV show. It's one writer and one reader. Um, it opens up the possibility for a connection that sometimes can feel not like love itself necessarily, but on a dimension that isn't entirely removed from love. Um, which is why in so many traditions, these types of questions have been explored, you know, through literature, whether it be poetry uh, or religious texts um, or, or the novel. That's, that's quite right. And especially when I think back to the reluctant fundamentalist, I mean, all of your books are just generally books. Uh, but the, what you're saying is like there is this 
Yeah, the reluctant fundamentalist is in the dramatic monologue. So it's two people talking to each other, but you as a reader are even more invited to this intimate conversation with, uh, with the protagonist, with the narrator. Uh, and uh, as you say, it's not, uh, it is like one on one. It's a lot more intimate. You, you imagine someone is speaking directly to you. Uh, and, and you are kind of called to, uh, a conversation. Either you refuse it or, you know, you don't talk, you don't read the book. Or if you do, then you are necessarily a part of that conversation and, uh, you, you're in it, uh, but not, it, it goes the way it goes, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's quite an amazing thing because, you know, um, literature is so weird, you know, like, like love itself. Um, you know, what is it? to read a book. Uh, we think of it as this very normal thing because we see it happening around and, and many of us who are of an older generation, you know, did it. Um, younger people, I think, sometimes struggle with reading a, a print novel or print book just because of what's happened to attention um, and, and the feeling that um, attention has been chopped into small bits and it sort of has been hyperlinked out into different directions. And so um, the idea of sitting for a few hours with this pulped, you know, wood and ink in your hands, um, just staring at it um, can be strange. Um, that said, uh, it is very strange. You know, um, what is happening when somebody is reading a book, right? They're staring really at this sort of, you know, wood. Um, and having a profound hallucination you know, right. for, for many hours. Um, you know, that is one of the most bizarre things that people do. You know, your dog watching you read a book um, you know, uh, is either very perplexed, you know, why is this person, you know, uh, just staring at that thing. It's not that interesting. You know, I've smelt it and it doesn't smell like much and I've looked at it, it doesn't do anything. And it doesn't there taste he is. good. Now, on the other hand, um, a dog might in fact find it entirely appropriate because dogs perhaps in their own dog, you know, mental state go into these reveries where they've, you know, smelled some urine on a nearby tree and they're uh, <laughs> drifting into their own, you know, uh, wonderful, um, uh, fantastic uh, emotional experience, which we can't have access to. Um, but so maybe dogs think, oh, of course, I, you know, this is just what this is, I know exactly what this guy's doing. But, but it is strange. Um, now, why do we do this? And it is, I think, different from uh, a film or a TV show because a film or a TV show is a simulation of, of, of the world. Um, you know, it, it, it's still this, this stuff moving on that screen that looks like the world. Um, there's sounds coming out of the screen that sound like the world, of course, different and artistically modified, etc. but somehow more like the world. Um, but the book just isn't. The book is something completely and utterly different. And, um, and so that weirdness is of incredible importance. Um, you know, the fact that we can enter into this hallucinatory state while holding this wood um, uh, inscribed with you know, strange symbols um, that come from the mind of another person. Um, that tells us something very interesting about human beings, uh, what we are capable of. You know, we think that the act of writing a book is a big deal. Oh my God, you've written a book. Oh, fantastic. Wow. You know, that's amazing. Uh, or, 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 what a, or what a waste of time. I mean, you know, it depends on how you feel about writing books. But when I was a young person, I thought, you know, writing a book would be just this great thing to do. And, and so I, I, I really, you know, was impressed with the idea that a human being could write a book. I never stopped and thought of just how impressive it is that a human being can read a book, which is in fact an equally or perhaps even more impressive act, that somebody can stare at this wood and have such a profound experience, which they are almost entirely generating themselves, right? The book is a kind of series of prompts, but it's not doing much. It's just sort of sitting there, you know, pulped wood with some ink on it. The person reading it 
is the one who's generating so much. And in that sense, I think there is something similar to love. In other words, it's not necessarily the beloved which is doing a lot in love. It's not that the universe or your girlfriend or your son or whatever is doing something, you know, to create the love. I mean, of course, the universe is beautiful and your girlfriend is wonderful and your son is charming and whatever. They're doing something. But, but I don't think it's, it's necessarily what they are doing that is the more interesting component. Instead, what's interesting is what you are doing, how you are generating this incredible hallucinatory experience, um, transformative, which is love. And how similar that is to reading a book, where again, this incredible thing is being generated by the reader. Um, and, uh, and so, and so I, I do find that, um, that books are quite an interesting place in which to explore this. Um, almost more so in terms of what readers do than what writers do. But, but as far as what writers do, if what I'm saying is, is, is a characterization that sort of makes sense, then um, giving or writing books that give space for readers to have their own hallucinatory experience, rather than imagining that somehow I am solely responsible for generating that experience becomes important. Um, and that, in a sense, suggests particular kinds of writing. You know, how might one write to do this? And in my case, you know, certain choices in terms of leaving things open, um, letting right, readers yes. really make their books. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And the thing is that this is the reason why I think when someone tells you, I love your book, that you do think that's genuine. That they're not bullshitting you. They, they, they really, uh, when they say that there, it's a genuine experience, uh, of, uh, uh, a kind of, as you said, weird, uh, intimacy that was established in the act of reading. And as you say, yes, definitely they are doing the work, but also the fact that you as a writer tried to create that intimacy through those, you worked hard at putting those words together, uh, to uh, to open the space for the possibility of that of that intimacy uh, i i remember like my first story i, I think if i if i didn't have this reaction from uh, to my first story that was published in the in the uh, united states that was in uh, oh that was probably 2005 uh where the editor from uh north carolina this small village in north carolina uh uh understands my story about Bosnian refugees in my life, like in Sweden, uh, at such a kind of fundamental level, uh, is, is, as you say, it's absolutely stunning and it's such a miracle. And, uh, and you, I never thought that was possible. And the fact that it actually happened tells me, as you say, uh, a lot about the human condition, that this is at the core of what we are as human beings. It, it lo looks absolutely weird. It cannot be explained by anyone in the Silicon Valley or as a kind of in engineering experiment, but it's very, very real. Uh, yes. And that's why I feel like when someone tells, uh, if I tell you, you know, I love uh, uh, the reluctant fundamentalist, you know that I'm that I mean this, uh, uh, the kind of the core of it, because it transformed me in the ways that I didn't see uh, uh, possible or expected. Well, and, and also I suppose that, um, is that when somebody says they love this book, um, they aren't saying only or even primarily that they love what you wrote. That's right. What yes. they actually are saying is, I love what happened to me. That's right. When I read your book, yes. which is, of course, so much like love in, you know, um, in, in other aspects of life, right? Which is that, you know, when we say we love someone, it's, it's only partly that we love, you know, them. That's right. Um, <laughs> we, we also just love this thing that we have with them. You know, that this person is, is, makes us feel this thing. Um, and that, that they bring out this feeling in us. Um, and, uh, 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 and so, um, you know, 
we we love something that is that is neither ourselves nor them but in some strange way something that comes into being jointly you know from us we love we love in a way a kind of relationship which of course is what reading a book is reading a book is a relationship it's a relationship that happens on your own but it still is a relationship between what you hallucinate and what somebody has presented to you as a starting off point for that hallucination so yeah i think that that is 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 very true would you then uh, connect uh, love to narrative and love to loves well love stories uh, i mean i i i've been operating a lot with this uh, notion that love stories give love a bad name because <laughs> a lot of love stories actually end up uh, you know and uh, a lot of negative stuff that's Absolutely. what makes them more exciting yeah but if you make a connection between love and narrative as such like do they exist without each other and how does it work yeah what do you think Um so uh, uh my daughter came in as you were asking this question so uh uh so if you hear any sound in the background that was that was the sound that that you'll hear No worries um no worries. but you know uh, so I think um in some ways um how one writes and what a narrative is in a sense um is a kind of courtship right that you know if you think of sort of sufi poetry and you think of you know the sort of iconic figure of let's say rumi you know who 800 years ago is writing these um love poems very often you know to or about his uh, beloved shams and shams of course is is this man that uh, rumi had this very strong connection with um and um but also the love stories that rumi is talking about feel that they transform that transcend just that particular pairing and that rumi is in fact talking about his relationship with the divine and each of our relationships with our beloved and um uh but it's quite clear that there's a kind of courtship underway in rumi's poetry um and in so much of sufi poetry which is directly addressed to the beloved now uh in much other writing there isn't this sort of direct form of address to the beloved and yet there still somehow is you know in a sense the reader can always be thought of as the beloved right the reader is always this person with whom a relationship is sought and that that relationship comes into being between reader and writer and um and that how we use narrative how we use language how we use uh, all the tricks and tools at our disposal you know plot imagery uh, metaphor illusion whatever it is um in a sense are all parts of that courtship and every writer does it in a different way um and every writer in each book will change how they do it um but i think being aware of that is is something that happens to varying degrees for some writers the awareness that there is the reader you know that there is the beloved out there and that one is addressing that reader and that beloved um is very much in the front of one's mind and for others it perhaps isn't so much the case although if you talk about it with them later so yes i can see how you would think of it that way uh but in the moment of writing they aren't thinking in those terms neither of those is a better or worse way of doing it but the but the former is closer to what i think of when i'm doing it oh yes that's uh, that is uh so uh, amazing i love this uh the the way you um kind of teased it out and 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 uh, I keep thinking because you may, you have repeated the word beloved so many times in different a lot a lot of times in connection to the beloved and in terms of sufi poetry but just beloved also as someone you love uh, uh and uh, it it designates uh, well a, a person or god or uh um uh, uh 
know, whatever is the object of your desire, of your love, like your directionality, like the, the, the way which, the way which you are directed towards outside yourself. Um, and the reason I'm thinking of, um, the word beloved is, uh, because it seems to me that there is a scene which dramatizes a lot of things which you've been talking about. And it's from, I think, our favorite writer, Tony Morrison, who uh, was your teacher once upon a time, right? Uh, yes. In the States, yes. Uh, and uh, in Beloved, her famous novel, uh, what we have is this uh, very, um, it's, it, it shows this, uh, it, in, in the most beautiful but also horrible way, uh, how uh, ownership uh, affects love. Uh, because the slaves are owned and everything becomes a form of possession. Uh, so she plays a lot with ownership. You don't own yourself. You, you don't own your love. You don't own your children. You don't possess them. Then, um, uh, then she becomes kind of possessed by the ghost. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of play with, uh, with that. Uh, and, uh, and she asks this question, well, how do we even love in, in a world like this, which has been entirely shaped by, by uh, the market, by uh, uh, economy, by uh, usefulness of uh, of human beings. What is even a human being in this situation? So the scene which kind of contrasts to that, and here uh, I think is the, the example of the, the speaker speaking to someone, calling, trying to establish this intimacy. I think you probably remember the scene with baby Suggs in the woods, and the clearing when she is speaking to the slaves uh, and uh, she is trying to form this kind of community. And she tells them, uh, uh, love your eyes, love your heads, love your arms, love your hearts, love your skin, love your liver, <laughs> love, uh, you know, she kind of chops up their bodies into parts and say, love this and love that. She instructs them to love these uh, themselves and together. So it's like, both the small parts and the individuals and community, all these things. I think it is one of the most beautiful scenes in literature. I think it, uh, it's just uh, stunning in the way it it uh, it uh, uh, calls love into being uh, and establishes love as the core of uh, of, of a human being. Yeah, and I think you know this idea of um, uh, the sort of reverse butcher. You know who identifies you know all the body parts um uh, almost clinically um and but then makes each of them worthy of love right is that they they, they rehumanizes um, Rehumanizes these every every single piece um you know it's it's um uh i mean one thing that in a sense if you now talk of of tony morrison and, and beloved which is um, you know, by many regarded as her masterpiece. Um, and that she also, uh, I think thought of that way once we were having lunch and, um, she said, uh, she saw I had a book sort of hidden underneath my, um, uh, notebook. And so what do you got there? And it was her novel jazz. And so she signed it for me. And then she said, you know, read beloved. It's good. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, and I read it and of course it was, um, and interestingly enough, we'd been assigned beloved, uh, as our summer read before we arrived at university and our first lecture at university was Tony Morrison speaking, um, as a departure point from beloved, but I hadn't read it at the time and I hadn't sort of gone to this lecture, not having read it. And then I was three years later in her classroom, still having not read it. Still uh, having not read it. Yeah. And, and oh so, uh, so, um, so I finally got around to it then. And of course, uh, you know, it, it was, as she said, uh, you know, very, very good indeed. And, um, uh, you know, I think that um, that novel is very much concerned with love. Um, uh, discur- you know, how powerful a force it is. Um, and when it is so brutally, you know, and horrifically, you know, violated, by the institution of slavery and its aftermath, um, what happens, you know, uh, and the kind of ghost story uh, of such a violation of love, when you take people and separate them from the people that they love, and you take people and separate them from, from their own children, and you, you know, um, 
um, and how, without, I guess, giving away too much of, of the book for those who haven't read it, but how, um, you know, a mother is presented with this question of, you know, if, if her child risks being enslaved after they've escaped, what does motherly love demand her to do? Exactly. Um, and so, uh, uh, I think, I think in that book is present such a powerful evocation of, um, you know, of what happens when love, um, is, uh, is, is thwarted and damaged and prevented and denied to such an extreme extent. What manifests after that? Um, and of course, that's something that we're reckoning with, you know, to this day, uh, not just in, in the context of the consequences of slavery, but in so many other contexts, um, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in just in the barbarities that we inflict upon each other. Mm. I agree, because that novel with uh, the, uh, a lot of, uh, well, extreme situations, it really draws your attention to uh, this uh, dichotomy between what she calls thick love and thin love. And uh, it seems to me that what you said uh, uh, in the beginning and throughout is that we need to go back to the thick love rather than this thin love, which is just a part of, uh, you know, the advertising and, uh, and the way it's been reduced uh, or diluted. Uh, I think that's that, that's why I lo love her metaphor, thick and thin, uh, so, yes. uh, rather than um, because it's like something that's diluted, uh, uh, made um, into, yeah, just kind of worthless. Yes, uh, in a way. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and um, um, the, so, I wanted to ask you: uh, uh, there were two scenes in The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which was so powerful to me in terms of the, the connection between uh, people and connection and disconnection. Uh, this desire for uh, connection, which is like a desire for food. Uh, uh, one scene is when uh, Cengiz is um, uh, meeting this, uh, well, some kind of a strange figure in a dark alley and, uh, and that person looks at him with kind of hate and that's the moment where uh, he imagined that there was affinity between them because they were both colored, I suppose, or that they were both Asian or something like that. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, his discovery of, uh, you know, not all his ethnic, his uh, race, his uh, Muslimness, those, those kinds of things. Whereas the other person, so, so Cengiz is thinking, okay, well, I'm connected to that to that person, I feel this affinity, whereas I'm now disconnected from my fellow Americans. Whereas that person looks at him as an American and kind of dis dislikes him. So, so he has this moment like, oh, I'm an American. <laughs> I'm a, like, what, what am, what am I? Like, what is my, myself? And this kind of moment of like, both connection and disconnection that he, that that's happens in in that moment is is so extremely powerful. The other moment is when uh, when Erica uh, asks him to, uh, well, when they're trying to make love and it's not working, uh, and it uh, and he obviously he desires her so much in a sense she she, lo she loves him too, but this sexual um, act is not, it's, it's, it's simply not working. You know, something, there is a barrier there, there is a, there's something between them that's uh, making this joining of two, two bodies and two souls, uh, makes it impossible. Uh, and there he suggests that he, that she imagines that, that, that he is her former boyfriend. So in a sense, he relinquishes himself entirely. Like it's uh, so, so, so almost kind of absolute annihilation of his self. Uh, and in both cases, there is connection and disconnection because, based on like what they imagine to be. You know? And this resonates with me, like in terms of what you said, how we read books, what we imagine the other to be, what they provide and what we imagine we are delivering in these situations. I wonder if you can just say something about those two scenes, what you were thinking, imagining yourself, or how do you think they, I find them so uh, disturbing, both of them. Yeah. 
So, so when Chinggis is working and he's in the Philippines and he begins to pick up on the resentment, you know, uh, towards him, uh, and he realizes that this resentment is because of the role that he plays, that he's, you know, working for a particular kind of company. And uh, he's, you know, representing a particular American kind of enterprise and comes across in a way as a kind of American. Um, what's strange for him is, is this, you know, identification with the person looking at him. Um, this, uh, uh, you know, which in a way you might describe as a bizarre kind of love that lasts for an instant, right? Where you That's suddenly right. yes. see through somebody else's eyes who you are. And this happens, I think, to all of us from time to time. You know, we'll be doing something and somebody will be reacting to us. And we realize that if we were seeing ourselves, we perhaps wouldn't like what we're doing. You know, why am I talking like this? Why am I acting like this? You know, children, for example, have a very good way of doing that. You know, as a parent, you know, you're disciplining your child. You're saying something to your child and your child is thinking, you know, what a jerk. Um, and, uh, and you're maintaining the you know, facade of, you know, this is how it will be. But it dawns in your head that, you know, wait, wait a second. You know, I am kind of being a jerk, actually. Yes. And, you know, how exactly. do I, yes. <laughs> how do I, how <laughs> do I retreat right. from this position I've taken without, you know, compromising all moral authority for the rest of my life? Um, the kid is right. Um, and then it, it comes back to what you said, I think, earlier in our conversation, which is that, you know, the self is a relational quality. It doesn't actually exist independent of other people. You know, that's why when in, they really want to punish someone in prison, they put them in solitary confinement. In solitary confinement, the self begins to collapse. Uh, and after you do it for long enough, the people, uh, you know, have severe uh, psychological damage. Um, so uh, uh, I think that, um, you know, that, that, that this interaction between two people um, is part of the self. Uh, you know, Chinggis sees himself reflected, um, but also Chinggis, in a sense, um, is feeling in the reflection some truth um, that that the mirror is uh, is holding up a truth that um, that a simple internal introspection wasn't revealing. Um, that, that he's, he's being confronted with something that he wasn't really looking at. And, um, and in a way, you know, uh, uh, similarly with Erica, there's, there's, um, in that scene, one thing which is happening, of course, is that, as you say, there's a kind of annihilation of the self that Chinggis is saying, you know, let me be somebody else for you. But, but there's also, as with every annihilation or with many annihilations, there's um, also something is made uh, in the annihilation. And, and so, so Chinggis is annihilating a self, which is Chinggis as Chinggis. But Chinggis is also taking on a self, which is Chinggis as this other man. Chinggis as somebody that he is not. Chinggis as somebody that, that she desires. And perhaps he desires to be. And what does it mean to desire to be someone who isn't yourself? Um, so, so what we are seeing there is, 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 is um, not merely, in a sense, the eradication of Chinggis as a person, but, but Chinggis being willing to entertain the possibility of eradicating himself and replacing himself with somebody else. So, so it, it is unclear to us how much of this desire is entirely from Erica, what she needs, and how much of it is something that Chinggis himself is willing to enter into because he perhaps desires a kind of transformation of himself too. Uh, I agree. And this is why such, this scene uh, is uh, so powerful. And I say, I repeat, disturbing to me because you leave it quite open uh, as you do, especially in that book, but uh, in generally in, in, uh, in most of your work. Uh, and uh, as you said earlier, the best literature does that. It leaves these things open. So you can't quite decide you know, how much 
is this forced upon him and how much does he actually desire it? You know, how much is uh, he deprived of agency and how much agency does he have in, in the act? And that kind of movement between those two is what makes this uh, so... Uh, I, I suppose that's what makes it so disturbing because it's a little bit like in the existentialist uh, leap or a jump, like uh, uh, is someone pushing you or are you actually leaping yourself? Are you committing suicide? Like what that, that kind of ultimate freedom and that literature does this. It gives you that shows you uh, how much freedom it, uh, there is in that. So if, uh, if an author serves you, the interpretation, if it's, uh, if it's really trying to teach you something by just like explicit, like in an essay, uh, but it's, it's different. Then you can, you can refuse it. You can kind of agree with it and so on. But if it puts you in this situation where you're responsible for, for it and you know, like, Oh, I could go that way and I could also go that way myself. Yes. Uh, it, 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 it really shows you something about your, uh, self, uh, and also the fact that, of course, this is an extreme example uh, where we, we see there's a, some kind of a violation going on, uh, but uh, but love seems to be moving between those poles. Like I am trying to build myself, I'm trying to maintain myself, but also I need to sacrifice myself. I need to relinquish myself to an extent in order to have a relationship. So it's like this kind of balancing act, this dance of, yes. uh, of, uh, eh? which is of course what, what readers do when they pick up a book, right? I mean, when a reader picks up a book, in a sense, there is a kind of annihilation which goes on. You know, yes, the, exactly, the room yeah. around you, what's happening in the world, you know, your life until that moment. In a sense, that's annihilated for a few hours and you enter into this other world. Um, now, of course, it's a temporary annihilation, hopefully, uh, or partially, but, um, uh, but, it's, but it still is, you know, a kind of annihilation. And we enter into it willingly um, and we emerge from it, you know, somehow, somehow changed. Um, and I think, you know, in a sense, that is the power uh, uh, here. You know, we began by talking about the fact that the self ends. Um, and so, you know, the self ending, of course, is an annihilation. Um, how do we make our peace or become comfortable or, or reckon with this annihilation? And in a sense, other experiences that open us up to annihilations seem to be attractive to us. You know, whether that's jumping out of an airplane, whether that's opening a book, um, whether that's, you know, making love to someone and pretending to be somebody else or asking to be thought of as somebody else. All of these annihilatory experiences um, open up, in a sense, possibilities to us and open up um, domains. Uh, and so, you know, if, if the traditional way of talking about annihilation was that, well, it's not really annihilation, that after the annihilation comes, you know, the afterlife or the rebirth or, you know, um, uh, the reincarnation or heaven and hell or whatever. Um, uh, there, there is, you know, in addition to all of those ways about thinking of the annihilation, there's also um, the notion of in our lived life, you know, what makes the annihilation not an annihilation? Um, why does Jinghe still exist at this moment? Why do I still exist after I put the book down that I'm reading? Um, and so I think this notion of love, um, it's, it's annihilatory, but also somehow transcendent power, um, does relate to this fear that we have of mortality, of death, of the end of the self. And it's useful to us in that way. It presents us with a kind of um, kindred experience to the one that we fear. Um, and we can make a different relationship to the thing that we fear as a result of that. That is, uh, that is absolutely uh, beautiful. It really kind of g connects the two, two forces, love and death, uh, together. Uh, and 
it's a, it's a perfect way to end uh, a really beautiful conversation. Uh, Maxim, thank you so much for, for this. This was really amazing. I really loved talking to you about uh, these, uh, about love and, and literature. I mean, those were the things that I was so looking forward to. My pleasure, Dan. It was, it was, I, I love the conversation as well. It was great to speak to you and I hope it's not too long till we get to uh, speak again. Uh, I am also looking forward to uh, having more uh, of, of these conversations, especially live and uh, yes. uh, meetings. And, uh, and hopefully uh, with, with, with famous footballers randomly strolling by. It's happened last yeah, time. Yeah. Exactly, last time. Yeah. Like we, I, I, I was also th thinking like we should have invited Zlatan to this uh, <laughs> podcast as well. So yes. we have like a chat with uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Yes. Uh, incidentally, I just, uh, before we... Um, uh, before we started this filming, I just saw a video of uh, this big uh, farewell they uh, staged for him in um, uh, in Italy, uh, showing all the love they have for him. Uh, yes, you know, it's really this uh, after a long period of you know all, all, everything he's done for the football and for them, and they were kind of they were crying and they were uh, smiling and they were. Uh, it was such a display of of love for um, for this um, amazing uh, footballer, and we just happened to meet him on the street. Right? Well, <laughs> let's just say let's say we happened to be within a few feet of him. I'm not sure it was quite within, a meeting, but uh, yes, it was quite a meeting. So <laughs> yes. We just we just jumped in, in front of him and uh, yes. took a selfie. Or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, so so that's why I was kind of thinking like uh, seeing this and uh, and. Um, um, I'm waiting for for our conversations. Like, oh, we should have invited Zlatan Ibrahimovic. It would yes. have been next time. A, a, next time, yes, a different kind of podcast. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Bless you, uh, and thank you so much for this. Thank you, Adnan. Yeah. All the best. All the best. <laughs>